I am honored to be with you today, and I'm looking forward to this time with you. It is going to be a continuation of what we started last week, which is dealing with loss. Because truthfully, loss is something everybody's going to experience. God doesn't tell us that we'll never experience loss again once we get born again. Doesn't tell us we'll never experience the pain that loss produces. And I'm using loss as a broad brush because it includes a lot of things. You know, a marriage can be lost. The strife and division and leaving both partners wounded in their soul, it can be a, a terrible thing. Children can be lost to the rebellion and uh, other influences that are in the world today. Businesses can be lost, called bankruptcy. You know, of course, uh, loss of sufficiency in any area of your life can be a significant experience. And your quality of life, as we said last week, is going to depend on, more than anything else, how you handle loss. Because it's a fact that when things are going well and you're cruising along, it's, it's easy to praise God and be thankful and all of that. But boy, when loss comes, the way you handle that loss is going to determine ultimately your quality of life. And we defined that last week as the peace of God, the joy of the Lord, and the contentment, the contentment in life that eludes so many people. And so we are in the process. So I'm not going to review to any great depth now, uh, but this message, this two-message series really is the product of, uh, first of all, I, I happened to listen a couple of weeks ago uh, to a, a message by Pastor Bill Johnson of Bethel Church. He lost his wife uh, about three weeks ago now, I guess. And he preached a message that we all ought to listen to. But then, shortly after that, uh, a family, a, a, an important family in this church, experienced the loss of a loved one, a son, a husband, you know, a father, and uh, unexpected. And the time that I was able to spend with that family really affected my heart in a number of ways, and it, it, it's the reason that I'm preaching on this for a couple of Sundays. But loss and the way you handle it will have a more profound effect on your quality of life than any other single thing. And so, you know, we said initially that uh, the, the actual loss uh, may be a little bit of a, uh, you know, that's not really the source it's the source of the difficulty, but it's the pain that it brings that needs to, to be dealt with, not accommodated, but dealt with. And so in talking about how uh, we address these issues, I'm, without reviewing a lot, I want to start today by going to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, and we'll look at verse 13. The word says this, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. Now the word temptation, we usually think of, think of 
as an enticement to sin. But the way the Strong's Concordance defines that word, it is a putting to proof by the experience of adversity. And God says very quickly in James chapter 1, verses 2 three, through 4, he talks about temptation. But he says in verse 13, don't even ever say that God uses adversity to tempt or test anybody. He doesn't. And of course, so that lets him out of the circle of consideration when really tough times come. It's not the Lord who's behind it. We know who the tempter is. We know who the one is that brings adversity to bear in our life for the sole purpose of putting pressure on what we believe. He knows that he can't change our destiny unless he can change what we believe. Because the Bible says, Jesus said, your life will be unto you according to your faith. Faith is an investment of your belief system in the word of God. And to the extent that what you believe has been uh, produced by the word of God, to that extent, you are living the life of faith. And the enemy puts pressure on what you believe by manipulating natural circumstance. Bible says he can do that. He has the spiritual legal right to do that. He's the God of this world, prince of the powers of the air, for the balance of this dispensation. And so he manipulates natural circumstance and people that don't know any better to put pressure on your belief system by generating circumstance contrary to the word. You know what the word says? The word says, by the stripes of Jesus, you're healed. The word says that, you know, God is your all sufficiency, the source of all sufficiency in all things. So you can abound to every good work. You know, so when a circumstance arises that's contrary to the word, and you don't have all sufficiency, and you're thinking, man, Bible, it must not be true, or something's wrong here. Maybe I've ticked God off, or whatever the case may be, because I'm not experiencing something the word says I should or could as a child of God. See, enemy, putting pressure on what you believe. Because then if you begin to alter your belief system to accommodate questions that really seem to have no answer, and that's what loss always does. It raises questions. Why? Why did this happen? This shouldn't happen. I'm a child of God. I have a covenant with God. You know, I, I, I do my best to live by the standard of his word. Why is this happening? Just remember this. Questions without answers right now will ultimately lead to unbelief. And there are many things you won't have an answer for in this life, for a lot of reasons, you know. Now, it may seem as if this series on mysteries of the kingdom, uh, I've said the opposite of that because Mark 4 says that it's given unto us as believers to know the mysteries of the kingdom, and it is. And eventually, we will. Some things we won't, we won't really understand until we get home to be with the Lord because he says, we see as though through a glass darkly right now. But then when we're in the eternal ages to come, we'll, we'll know these things. And there are answers here on this earth. Uh, you know, sometimes he'll give them to you, but sometimes no answer is forthcoming. 
So what do you do with that? Do you begin to alter your theology because, you know, you can't figure this deal out? Well, maybe it isn't God's will to heal, or maybe it isn't God's will to prosper. How do you manage it in that kind of circumstance? Well, you know, the Bible says that there are certain mysteries we're going to have to live with. That's why this is called the life of faith. If, there, if you understood everything all of the time, there wouldn't be any need for faith. But faith is required because you're going to encounter many occasions on which you don't really know what's going down. People with little faith said this last week, always judge God by what he doesn't do. You should be judging God by what the word says he will do and who he is. Who is always with you, never leaves you, never forsakes you, always the source of every good thing that comes into your life. That's who God is. There is no darkness in him. And as he said in James 1.13, don't even say he's behind the adversity or loss or the threat of loss that comes to you in your life. He is not. And so, you know, when we begin to read the word here in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10, he tells us some things. When temptation or a putting to proof by experience of adversity, the enemy is putting proof to how much of a faith person you really are. By the experience of adversity, what do you believe? Do you believe the word of God or do you believe what the circumstance would suggest? And he says that no such adversity, no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. You know, we always feel like, man, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody. No, God says that everything negative that occurs to you is common to man. Other people have experienced it. Somehow, I think we sometimes find comfort in numbers. We're not alone in this. But he reminds us of that fact. And he says, but, but God is faithful, who will not suffer or allow you to be tempted or tested or tried above that you are able. In other words, I have people say to me frequently, as I'm sure you heard, I can't take much more of this. I can't stand this. You know, it's too terrible. It's too painful. Uh, it's, it's just more than I want to endure. Well, you need to remember, God says he's not going to allow it. He will intervene, it, intervene in it. So you don't want to be a whiny baby. You don't want to be a wimp. You want to man up or woman up or whatever you want to, however you want to phrase that. And just trust God because he will not allow, allow it to get so bad that you can't endure, endure it. But here's the good news. He goes on to say, but will with the temptation or the adversity also make a way to escape. I did a series once called The Way of Escape. And we examined a lot of the different uh, kinds of mechanisms God uses to bring deliverance to bear in a person's life. I've been feeling like this for a moment or two. And so basically, when he says he prepares a way of escape, we should rejoice in that knowledge. There is a way out of whatever pain 
you are in or whatever caused it. And so understanding how we find that way of escape becomes a prominent consideration. When we're in the middle of, you know, working through loss of one sort or another and the pain, uh, you know, you can't deny the fact that the kinds of losses that people can suffer where a loved one leaves prematurely is about as painful as you can get. And so, you know, when we talk about a way of escape, that becomes all important in, in that regard. How do we manage this kind of loss? I said last week, first of all, realize that there's going to be some things you don't have an answer for. That means that you become childlike in your faith, just like a little child that is too young to be able to logically deduce uh, what's happened to them. They just accept what their authority figures, usually their parents, tell them is truth. And God says that's the way we need to be with him. We need to be childlike in our approach to him. And one of the things that I think is important in identifying the way of escape is to understand that there is a scriptural mourning when you lose something or someone, uh, that sense of sadness and heaviness needs to find expression through your soul because it has that kind of purging effect. You don't want to bottle it up, you know, uh, put on a stiff upper lip and say, I'm not moved when you're just crying and dying in here. You need to let it out. And that's why we're told to weep with them that weep, mourn with them that mourn. But there is a scriptural mourning that brings you out of the pain rather than taking you down into it. You can mourn one of two ways. And uh, we'll see, okay, let's just go on and look at Matthew chapter 5. For a moment, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Beatitudes here in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 4 says, blessed, empowered to prosper or increase, is what blessed means. Blessed are they that mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. And, of course, this is predicated on your understanding that there's a scriptural way to mourn. And, if, you know, uh, there's an unscriptural way to mourn that will lead you to grief. Grief is a spirit. It is not of God. And it will take you into a darkness that's hard to recover from. Mourning, scripturally, will take you to being comforted. And you should understand why. Because God is the comforter. It is the Lord Amen. that comforts us in our time of need. And we are temples of the Holy Spirit, so that potential for comfort is within us. And it's found in His presence. And so when, you know, we have loss or we're feeling this pain, need to deal with it, you need to mourn. You need to express it through your soul. Purge what's within you that way, but don't stay there. Don't stay there any longer than you have to. And I believe once the comforter manifests within you and his presence becomes big inside of you and in your life, that comfort then uh, will begin the process of progressing through this 
horrible occasion that you've just experienced. And of course, uh, then the question is, how do you mourn correctly and not have it go toward grief? How do you mourn so that in fact, the presence of God is magnified and that would mean the presence of the comforter? Well, the first thing that you do, I believe, according to the word, uh, we find in Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God, how often? Continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, we can praise God and should at any point in our life, but it's a sacrifice when something terrible has happened to you and you have no natural reason to praise his name. As a matter of fact, you may want to point your finger at him and say, God, why did you let this happen? Why did you let this happen? This is awful. We, it, it shouldn't be. We have a covenant with you. No, instead of that, there is a sacrifice of praise. When you are hurting so badly, it is hard to move. Start lifting your hands to God and thanking him and praising his name. This is powerful. One of the things that moved me about being with our family that we that had this kind of loss a little while, short while ago, was watching them do just that. At, at a time of the deepest agony, pain, and I'm sure uh, questions that are assailing their mind. They lifted their hands to God. How often are you to do this? Continually. When the pain comes, when it tries to resurface, don't let it take you in the wrong direction toward grief. But lift your hands to the Lord and praise Him. Praise Him, not for the circumstance, Religion has said, well, you know, you're just supposed to praise God. If you have a car accident, praise God for the accident. You needed the accident. That's ignorance gone to seed. He doesn't produce the accidents. <laughs> no, you praise him because he is who the word says. <clears throat> he never leaves you, never forsakes you. He's always there to lift you up when you turn to him and sacrifice of praises, turn your heart to him in the most painful moments of your life. You praise God. And when the pain comes back again, you continually praise God and you'll move your life toward a place of increase. Now this is hard to understand because it has no rational explanation. But God says, unless a seed dies, it's cast to the ground, it can't produce fruit. Now, this is not the kind of, uh, you know, planting of seed that we necessarily want to participate in. But understand, God can take death in any form, and if you approach it right, he'll produce increase. You'll have more joy 
more gratification in your future relationships than you hoped you would have with the person who is now gone. That's what the Word says. And therefore, you need to believe what the Word says. You may not see how, because the pain of the separation at the moment may seem like, I can never have this again. This was the only person I could ever feel this with. That's not, that's not the Word. If you do it God's way, that mourning will not only bring comfort to you, but ultimately an increase of what you thought you lost. I don't know how, but I know God, and I know that this is his word. And so the first step in the comforter being more manifest in your life is simply to praise God with the fruit of your lips and to do it how often? Continually. Continually. It will, you know, the enemy will attempt to magnify your loss from time to time. Uh, you know, at least uh, as you're still fairly close to that loss. So continually, every time the pain comes, you offer the sacrifice of praise unto God. I wish I could spend more time on all of this, but, you know, uh, well, maybe I will anyway. But basically, I will try to make it, you know, end on time. The second thing that you do to move your life toward the way of escape, escape from the pain, from the grief the enemy wants to bring, escape from this awful moment of your life, the second thing you do, we actually see referred to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, the word says, but I would not have you be ignorant, brethren. Now, he's not calling anybody ignorant. He's just saying, don't allow yourself to be without knowledge of this, what we're getting ready to talk about. Concerning them which are asleep, or, you know, somebody who died in this natural arena, that you sorrow not even as others which have, what? No hope. Now, when somebody sorrows, this is mourn. When somebody is mourning without hope, that's when it goes to grief. That's when it goes to, to worse darkness than ever. Hope here is defined as expectation. So there needs to be an expectation cultivated in these very difficult times based on what the Word of God says. Most human expectation is predicated on past experience. I'm preaching better than you're responding this morning. It's based on past experience. Well, you know, I tried to go in business three times and didn't make it any of those times. So, you know, I don't expect I'm going to try that again because I believe I'll fail again. Well, that's expectation shaped by past experience. Well, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to be the first one to reach out to somebody. I get rejected almost every time, and that's painful. I'll just let them reach out to me. Well, that's not how the Bible defines love. But we're basing our expectancy on past experience. You're to base your expectation on what the Word says. God tells us 
things that should shape our expectation. If it involves a loved one who's gone home to be with the Lord, you should expect to see them sooner rather than later because that's what the Word says. In the eternal ages to come, we'll be reunited with those who have gone on before. You should expect their presence in your life to continue making a difference because they are part of the great cloud of witnesses. Now listen to this. I don't have time to preach about it, but, but I have in the past. The Bible tells us two things about being born again. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. Of course, one refers to our positional authority. God sees us as being in Christ. In other words, righteous, living right or holy, you know, prosperous, healed. That's the way the Lord sees us. And it's only when you believe that that these things will begin to come to pass because it's going to be unto you according to your faith. And so, you know, um, so when we see the word say that uh, they're part of a great cloud of witnesses and they were in Christ, which they were, if they were born again, and Christ is in us, guess who is in us? The one that we love. The one that has gone before, still there. He is still with you, but he's not just some distant figure overlooking, you know, hanging over the balcony rail of heaven. No, if he was in Christ, and Christ is, he's still in Christ, and Christ is in you, then guess who else is in you? His influence will always be part of your life. His or her, I'm not speaking just to any one particular person, but, you know, and I've seen this in my own life. You know, my mom and my dad, nobody could have had better parents than I did. They were loving, they were good, uh, you know, Christians, they, they were wonderful parents. And boy, you know, when my dad died, my mom died before my dad, but when he died, yeah, that was really painful. Even though I was expecting it, he was 95 years old. He had just run a race and, uh, you know, and he died that morning and I was in there with him when he did. And boy, does that hurt. But I realized very shortly, and don't get weird and try to talk to the dead. That's not the Bible. But, but I realized that his influence in my life is as strong as it ever was. And I find myself doing certain things, and it's almost like, you know, gosh, my dad wouldn't like that, you know. I would almost hear that. I would feel that. That influence is still there. You can't converse with the dead. Don't try to. That's not Bible. And that's the way the wrong spirits wind up talking to you. But uh, basically, you know, you should be aware of the fact that that loved one is closer to you perhaps than he or she was in this natural life in some ways. And so, you know, you expect that that loved one's part in your life continues. It doesn't end when they leave this physical world. It continues. And somehow, as you give God the sacrifice of praise and cultivate your expectation on the basis of his word, you'll move into a time of increase in ways that you can't even imagine. Oh, man, I'm preaching too long on each of these, but <clears throat> it, <clears throat> you have to shape 
your expectation. Not only will I see them, um, you know, in the eternal ages to come and be reunited, not only that, but that treasured sharing of influence that we had, you know, that's going to continue in my life. Their presence is a reality in my life. Even though I may not be able to physically converse with them, it's still a reality. Shape the expectations that you're going to experience a greater measure of blessing than you ever could have experienced before if you react to loss this way. I said something last week that is true. There is a greater dimension of the presence of God that you will experience in the valley of the shadow of death than you will anywhere else. Because it turns you toward God if you allow it to, instead of taking you away. And you'll experience measures of his presence, of his supernatural comfort, of his increase that you would never experience any other way. Now, I heard Bill Johnson say that loss, and he just lost his wife. He said that loss, you know, this is, would be hard to do, should be considered an opportunity to experience a measure of God that will transform you in a greater way Amen. than any other occasion. So don't waste the opportunity. I mean, you're hurting but it's an opportunity to experience more of God than you ever have before. And that's the way you should expect it. You should expect to be more than a conqueror through him who loved you. You should expect to be able to do all things through Christ. Amen. I mean, shape your expectation on the basis of the word of God. And these two things, the sacrifice of praise and the shaping of your expectation to line up with the word, will take you through that period. The pain will begin to minimize as you continually offer that sacrifice of praise, sharpen your expectation of what the Word says about you, your kids, in this regard. Just do that. Just do that. And you'll look back on this day. And yes, it is, you know, in a natural sense, this is about the saddest thing that can happen to lose a loved one. But you will see the faithfulness of God over that period of time to lift you to a place you would have never been or never experienced otherwise. Amen. Glory to God. Um, well, now, every single truth of God's Word has a larger context that it needs to be placed in for it to be operative. Uh, in other words, the Bible says that our royal law is love. And love is defined by the word as being concerned about someone else's need more than you are your own. That's love. When you put your need second behind someone else that that God brings into your life. I mean, certainly, um, this is a challenging process as well, but you got to get over yourself. You got to get over your carnal nature and your fleshly desire. You just have to. And you do that by when you've got a need, you look for somebody else who has a need that maybe you can address or minister to. 
Because as you get your eyes off your need and get your eyes on someone else's need, that minimizes the power of your need. You know, it's always going to be a Christian endeavor to put self-gratification behind meeting somebody else's need. But that's a larger context of understanding that governs everything else we, we, we talk about, any specific example. For instance, you know, in talking about what we're discussing now, if in fact you're making this sacrifice of praise to God, you know, but uh, you're doing it because uh, it's, it's just about me. I got to get over the pain. You're deliberately uh, executing these expectations for your life on the basis of the word, but your motive is me. If you can twist the motive, align the motive with the word of God and say, I want to be effective in helping other people in their time of need. So Lord, I believe you lift me out of my uh, pain so I can be more useful to you in the kingdom. And then you actually make that a, an endeavor that you pursue to be used more profoundly in the kingdom of God to help other people than you were before. And you can't if you're all covered up with self-pity and, uh, and you know, you're just filled with sadness because of what happened to you. You won't be able to. So everything always has a larger context. The love of God even has a larger context of understanding. I mean, a lot of times we think about loving other people and, uh, you know, we go to people that it's easy for us to love. We go to our immediate family or people that are smart enough to love us. You know, we want to love them back. I mean, so, you know, we want to pick the people that we love and that we practice our love on. Well, you can practice on them. Uh, but that's not the larger context of understanding. The larger context of understanding, Mark 16 says... Go ye into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believeth shall be saved. He who believeth not will be damned. We, we know that great commission. But this is what God's saying. Don't just focus your love and your attention on those that are closest to you, easiest to love. He said, yes, there is a need to start with your own community. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you know, that to be endued with power from on high, and then go ye into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But you start with your community in Jerusalem, and then into Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. That would be like Minneapolis, St. Paul, state of Minnesota, America, and then into all of the world. In other words, Move beyond your comfort zone. Don't just be uh, loving to the people that are easiest to love. And the way you help people, this is where the need lies, is to get the word into people that don't know the word, that are living in abject poverty, not just in the physical arena, but poverty of the soul. And poverty in every way. They need what you know. And when you have that paradigm of life, now this is what God says. He says, this is what you're to do. Your authority as a believer rests upon that right. understanding. 
We try to exercise our authority over our wife. Woman, get in line. Take that pocketbook back. You know, what am I? I don't know. I've had a few conversations like that with my wife. You've got 42 pocketbooks and you bought another one or shoes or whatever. It could at least be something useful like a boat or a rifle. But <laughs> I don't know how I got off on that. But, but when you begin loving beyond your comfortable borders, then you open your life to a level of authority as a believer that you won't have otherwise. That's what it says here. If we continue uh, into Mark, the next verse here in Mark 16, these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. Keep going. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. This really, part of what's being discussed here is your authority as a believer. I mean, in this part of the world, uh, you know, history books, you know, interesting uh, analysis of life in these days said that snakes were a, one of the most feared uh, of all things in that day because they're all over the place. A lot of people got bitten and died. And because the water, it says nothing you should drink will hurt you. They had no way to know how to purify water back in that day. They knew nothing about the bacterial or viral content of water, the need for purification. You can't just go drink water anywhere. I went um, moose hunting in the Yukon a few years back with some friends. And yes, hunting is scriptural. But anyway, I went moose hunting and uh, we were in the Yukon. And I went on horseback to another area inland to hunt. But Mark Hankins was with me on that trip. He was one of the guys along. Mark decided to float down the river. Hope he saw something on the riverbank that he could shoot. And... Um, but, you know, it was easy for him to reach down and drink that water because it was beautiful, crystal clear, just bubbling along, you know, in the, in the shallows. And he drank that water, but not thinking, you know, that moose and beaver and every other creature uses that to go to the bathroom in. And so it's filled with all kinds of, uh, you know, unhealthy things. And boy, he caught an amoeba or something. And he's funny even when he's sick. Uh, but we got back to camp. He had used all of his underwear. He used all of my underwear and everybody else's underwear. And, uh, you know, it was, it was funny, but he was really sick. It took him about two months to get rid of whatever it was. And the point being, this is commonplace. In uh, Old Testament times, nobody knew about, uh, you know, the sterilization of water for the most part. Uh, they knew that some water was sweet and other was not. Uh, but so God is saying, you have authority over anything that would hurt you, serpents or snakes or, uh, you know, water that, you know, would otherwise bring harm to your body. So you have authority. You have authority over this. Why? It follows, go ye into all of the world and preach the gospel to a select few that you're comfortable with. No, to every creature. And when we begin to organize our thinking 
and our lives within the larger context of Scripture, then all the little pieces fall in place. But I, I really do think we limit the authority we can exercise in this life as believers by not considering the larger context of understanding within which the Word of God says we need to live. And so, I would suggest that being mindful of going into the world is an important thing. And, you know, uh, my role as pastor of this church is to provide those not only opportunities, you know, because I know, you know, not everybody can go. Not everybody is a sent one. A very small percentage of the body of Christ will actually go ye into all of the world. But the way the Bible reads, if you're not a sent one, you can do the sending by making it financially possible. And that's what Galatians 6.6 6 tells us. Tells us not to, not to you know, forsake communicating or giving to those that teach the word, meaning they may not be able to go teach the word. Those were traveling ministers back in that day. Uh, they may not be able to go teach the word themselves, but they can support in a material financial sense the effort that others make and they get the same credit that the one that went gets. Amen. Amen. Amen? Oh, man. The Word is so good, the revelation that it brings to us. And so we can understand then that going ye into all of the world may be for you, may have the meaning of send ye into all of the world. If you're unable to go, you have family responsibilities and kids and you know, there are other things that would be a consideration. And so you become a sender, but the Lord says, don't be deceived. God isn't going to be mocked. He sees it as if you are the one that literally went over there and planted the seed of the word. But because you couldn't go, you sent them. And he said, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. You will reap whatsoever you've sown. But this is only half the great commission. And this is what the Lord showed me the other day. Uh, the other half of the Great Commission is in Matthew, in, and, um, which says in verse 19 of chapter 28, Matthew, and I'm going to read this from the Amplified because it amplifies it. Go then and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. How do you make disciples? Do you have to have somebody tag along behind you and you mentor them all the days of their life? No, that's not it. You make disciples by making churches. The church is the environment God created for somebody who has been saved uh, and knows enough of the Word to get in church then it is in that arena that they make the relationships, they hear the preaching, that causes them to grow up in the Word and become a disciple. So this might as well have said, Pastor Mac, use the Falcon 50 to go plant churches in other cities. That's the way I read it. I have had a revelation. Some Man, I've had several people prophesy to me over the years, which, you know, you don't always 
know whether to take it worth a grain of salt or not, because a lot of the time it's people you don't know. Uh, but I've had a lot of prophecy about I'm called to be an apostle. And my answer to that is I don't know how to be an apostle. The only thing I know how to be is a pastor. Well, guess what? God's given us a chance to step, step into an apostolic ministry calling by planting churches all over this world. And you want to see the blessing of God? Then move in with me to this new dimension of ministry God has called us. And let's go into all of the world. Let's plant churches everywhere we possibly can. We've got seven locations we're going to plant churches in this year. We started with the Dominican Republic. I uh, didn't have the Falcon ready in time for that. We were a week late getting it ready. Uh, by the way, I see somebody else here I want to introduce to you. Chris Weisbrod, would you stand up for a moment? Because this is a man that did it. This is, this is, this is, this is the guy. He has... He's our director of maintenance. I'm thank, I thank God for him, as I do all of the guys in our department, in the aviation department. But he, you know, he's, he knows everybody in the maintenance world. He has a gift from God in being able to troubleshoot, fix, and repair things. And the Falcon is flying now because of his effort over the last year. So, so uh, which... But anyway, I do believe that this church is on the brink of a new phase of ministry that will open uh, many different levels of God's provision and blessing for all of us Amen. that step into this in one heart and one mind, begin to take the word to every city we possibly can. Amen. We started with the Dominican Republic, and uh, we did what we call a soft launch because uh, we hadn't finished the building uh, we're paying for the building that, that is going up down there, and uh, it wasn't finished, so we did a soft launch. The end of September, we're going, taking the Falcon and a team uh, back down to the Dominican to dedicate the building. And then we're going from there to Bogota, Colombia, where we have other contacts. We'll be launching another church, planning another church in Bogota. And during the course of next year, we have seven different locations that we're going to, uh, to plant churches. And I thank you in advance for your support of this in prayer, in agreement, striving together, one heart, one mind, and as the Lord leads, financially. Uh, this is a million-dollar undertaking, and this will be our goal for the upper Midwest faith explosion to go a million dollars above the budget. Last year, you brought in a million and a half. God brought in a million and a half through you your hearts and your generosity. This year, you know, we, we're looking to a million dollars, which is a pretty good deal. If you divide that by seven, you know, per church, that's one good thing about going into all of the world. It's a lot less expensive to start a church down there than it is in Minneapolis. You know, I'll tell you that. But uh, at any rate, I want you to be in agreement with me over the next several days, the course of this next week. You see, all of this has to do with moving your life ahead in God. All of this has to do with overcoming the pain of loss for anybody. This is part of it, getting your eyes on something else other than the, th the terrible thing that you just experienced. Yes. 
and using your resource to enable someone else's need to be met. So I'm excited about this week. I want you to be as well. And I'm so grateful the Lord has done this because, you know, I really felt like my wife would say every now and then to me, we ought to be doing more in the world. And I say, be quiet, Lynn. We, we have trouble doing what we need to do in Minneapolis. And really, it's, it's been kind of that way. And then all of a sudden, the light went off. He gave us a Falcon 50. He gave us the money to get it in the air and to get it overhauled and flying. He's given us, you know, uh, the pilots, the mechanics. You know, I went to flight school with two other guys. And, uh, you know, we got type rated in the airplane. Well, the only problem is if you go on one of these trips, you might have to put up with my jokes because I'm going to be in the airplane. But <laughs> so then, this is all an exciting time for us. And uh, if you've experienced loss, don't let the enemy rob the potential of your future from you because in God, he's got things planned for you that I hadn't seen, ear hasn't heard, and neither has entered the heart of man. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.